Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. From the New Books Network, this is New Books and Geography. I'm your host, Dino Kadich. Today I'm speaking to Sabina Lavrenyuk and Lori Parsons, authors of Going Nowhere Fast, Mobile Inequality in the Age of Translocality. Their book takes aim at the truism that a rising tide lifts all boats, looking at Cambodia, one of the world's fastest growing economies. Its place in the international textile industry has provided jobs to upwards of a million Cambodians. But even as labor actions have pushed textile workers' wages up slightly, this tide of relative prosperity has left many of the most marginal worse off. They explain how this happens by exploring lived experiences of mobility, immobility, and the making of translocality in Cambodia. They show how the age of translocality means more than prosperity and remittances. Even as it allows some to accumulate enormous amounts of wealth and security, it creates insecurity and poverty for those seemingly disconnected from the productive center. Sabina Lavrinyuk is Nottingham Research Fellow at the School of Geography, University of Nottingham. Laurie Parsons is Lecturer in Human Geography and British Academy Fellow at Royal Holloway, University of London. Sabina, Laurie, welcome to New Books in Geography. Thanks, Dino. Great to be here. I have a chance to talk about the book. Wonderful. Um, So let's just get right into it. Um, Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background as scholars and how you came to write this book? Yeah, well, we actually come from quite diverse backgrounds um, initially as scholars. Um, when we first started thinking about doing all of this, I was, uh, I was uh, reading History of Art and Philosophy. We met at Durham, and it was in the third year that we first started thinking about going to uh, Cambodia in order to do some further work there. It was a place that we had a lot of interest in as a kind of context. We were really interested in getting into development. Obviously, bringing my kind of philosophy and history of art background to um, the combination with uh, with Sabina's background, which was which politics, we had um, a really uh, we had a kind of unusual perspective on how to approach this. And I think one of the key things that in our discussions about how to approach the issue of Cambodian development that really came up was that we weren't comfortable at all with the idea of uh, of going to to study development in in the West, in the global North. In a, in a global northern university and then kind of to take that knowledge as a template out and apply it to a place like Cambodia, which seems so different from the kind of textbook uh, understandings of how economic development happens. So then we hit upon this idea as both of us were finishing university uh, where we met in Durham um, of, of going to uh, going to Cambodia to study it there. And so we decided upon the idea of going to do a master's instead of uh, moving to London, for instance, or another university in the UK. We both decided to move to uh, the Royal University of Phnom Penh to do a part-time master's out there in uh, in Cambodia, in Phnom Penh. And there we remained for the next two years, and that was 2008. 
And it's there that we got the opportunity to work on this really uh, amazing research project that was being run by uh, local and international academic staff at the Royal University of Phnom Penh, all about um, the intersections between migration, uh, natural poverty, uh, sorry, natural resources and rural poverty. Um, and so that kind of sparked our interest in this kind of uh, you know, work on migrant work and inequality. And we've just kind of taken it, taken it from there and it, it's informed our PhD uh, subjects and, and these kind of side projects that form the basis of this, this book. Yeah, exactly. And it was that two years when we first, yeah, we, we were given the opportunity, which was really the making of, uh, of, our, of our research careers, really. We got the opportunity whilst there at the Royal University of Phnom Penh to work on this IDRC-funded project. And then, of course, we were coming into that with no, you know, we didn't even, we'd only just started master's degrees. We didn't even have a background theoretically in development. And then it was this incredible opportunity to go straight into the field within a couple of months of starting and, uh, and to be, you know, right there at the kind of really what felt like the cold face of development at the time. So it was, it's been essentially a very much kind of thrown in at the deep end, bottom-up research, practice-based approach to understanding development. And that was really, I mean, we're just, uh, I mean, just delighted, you know, thinking about, thinking back on things as you do, you know, having finally published a book which really brings together all of those years of experience how those kind of initial ideas of, uh, of really trying to do something a bit more bottom-up have come together. And really it's something that a lot of people, well, I think in retrospect, might call uh, the idea of almost like decolonising this practice of development, the idea of trying to work through, uh, through domestic institutions, through global southern institutions and see things, um, you know, the way in which they are seen in context rather than applying an external viewpoint. And that really is something that I feel like very much runs through the book. It's very much an emic perspective on development. It's how it looks from the ground up rather than, you know, to see like a state or indeed in development as, as a planet. Yeah. And how did you come to the Krong Yuv uh, commune, which is one of the focals of this book alongside Phnom Penh um, and other uh, kind of different places that people migrate to? Well, that was actually, that was uh, a question simply of following out the migrants that we first found. So um, the research project that we were working on at the time was one um, looking at the uh, natural resource, uh, migration and natural resource management. And so what we had to do is go straight into the urban side of things. We were kind of managing the research project on the urban side. So we went into a little um, urban enclave called Tukla, which which really felt quite... um, it's quite an amazing experience at the time to go down this kind of the main road, national road, uh, or the road out to the airport. It's quite a large road. And then you just take a, a small alley next to a dentist. And then uh, through this alley opens up this incredible world of migrant lives that you'd never see from the road. And so we spent many months working there and talking to people, understanding how their lives kind of played out and understanding these persistent linkages to rural areas, which really became the theme of the book and a lot of the work that we've done since. But it was by following those linkages that we ended up in Krangyo. Uh, it's a place not hugely far from Phnom Penh. It's about two hours, um, but it's very, very much, very much a rural area. And um, we spent uh, many months working there, and we've been working there ever since. That was somewhere where um, actually the commune in which both of us uh, did our PhDs on different kind of areas. And um, we discovered in the course of doing PhDs, very much after arriving there, this was actually a very special 
front of commune, and we'd never known this. We only arrived with the uh, with the sense that it was somewhere from where our kind of research subjects originated. But it turned out that this was actually a really interesting kind of development test case. It was a place where uh, that had been seen as earmarked as a kind of key context where this new model of development could be implemented, where these new agrarian ideas could be put into place with irrigation, all kinds of investment. Um, but then, interestingly, as we discovered in the course of our PhDs, this was something that happened in the in the mid-90s, that Krangyo was kind of given this label of being the future of kind of Cambodian agriculture. But um, a few years later, in the wake of some bad election results for Prime Minister Hun Sen, uh, offence was taken and the funding was cut from Krangyo. So we've got this very interesting kind of background, political and agricultural background to this place, as having been a kind of central pillar in that initial idea of, of development and democratisation, and then subsequently having been abandoned to a far more, uh, well, a far more rural and um, less connected state than was the original plan. And it's really an example of you know the enjoying. Um the enjoying influence of patronage ties in Cambodia because Krangyo is situated in the district of Sa'ang, which is the district where the Prime Minister's home uh, is located. So it's had a lot of uh, favours bestowed on it as it's right next door to the Prime Minister's house. And it's changing fortunes over the past um, decade have been really interesting to watch. I think it's now earmarked as the site for a new international airport. So the the, the lake on which most of the villages um, that we were working in relied on for uh, fisheries, um, we don't know what's going to be the future of that. Uh. Exactly, and I mean, in, in that sense, it kind of like one of the reasons that we keep fixating on this little, little place, very small place in the kind of wider geography of Cambodia, is that it is just such a microcosm of everything that's happened. This idea of that kind of initial uh, optimism surrounding development, and then all of these kind of projects that were supposed to transform Cambodia agriculturally, rurally from the ground up. And then, you know, the, the political machinations that saw it abandoned finally, uh, and finally perhaps a more kind of top-down return from the centre in terms of that airport. Thank you. Um, so I think a lot of our listeners won't be as familiar with Cambodia as a context as you are, um, and I really appreciate kind of the richness in the book with which you approach it. Um, so can you just give a little bit of background um, on these places that you worked in and how um, they've changed so dramatically since um, the end of the Khmer Rouge? Yeah, I mean, so one of the really interesting things I think about the book is that it captures um, a decade of development in Cambodia, which has changed from a a mood of kind of cautious optimism when we started researching the book uh, in 2008 to um, to much more... um, I don't know, pessimistic tones, um, like recently, um, the political uh, situation in Cambodia has changed a lot since then. Um, in 2008, the growth of the export-led industries was really driving uh, rapid rates of economic growth. And there was a lot of talk about Cambodia being one of these kind of Asian tiger uh, economic miracle um, countries. But what we've shown through kind of what we've witnessed through 10 years of change in Cambodia is that um, a lot of these um hopes of this economic miracle uh, being delivered have like failed to manifest on the ground. They haven't um, manifest in people's uh, livelihoods. Um, and that's kind of fueling um, a lot of um, dissatisfaction really amongst uh, the, the Cambodian population and, and has fed into a trajectory of, uh, of authoritarian political change. 
Yeah, and I mean, I just think, I mean, to give you uh, the listeners something of a background, I mean, this is a place that is really synonymous, I suppose. If you think about one word or one picture to associate Cambodia, it's often, you know, the Khmer Rouge in the, 19, in the 1970s, this kind of catastrophic collapse of the, uh, of the modern state, as it then was. And, uh, and this, this movement back to year zero and the total agrarian socialism that followed. An entire decade after that, really, from 1979 through the 80s, Cambodia was occupied by, uh, by Vietnamese forces. It became essentially a puppet state of, of Vietnam. And this was very much a decade of stasis. Movement was very much restricted in Cambodia. Economic, uh, economic development was very limited. There was very little commerce at the time. It was really a kind of a decade of stagnation, often seen as a lost decade. And it was at the beginning of that next period, 1991, uh, 1992, when you got the, the Paris Peace Accords and, uh, uh, and the, uh, the finally putting an end to the war with the Khmer Rouge, which had gone on for, dragged on really for 15 years since they were deposed from central government, that there was this huge mood of optimism, which really suited the global mood in the beginning of the 90s. This kind of end of history idea that with development, technical development, economics, democratization, that we could solve the problems that had pervaded the world for so long throughout the 20th century and, in, and bring peace with it. So Cambodia essentially in its modern form was born into this mood of enormous optimism, which really has, uh, which pervaded the country for at least the next 20 years. And of course, we weren't there back then in the early 90s um, with, this, with this kind of uh, Phoenix-like recovery. But uh, we did arrive in the early 2000s. I first arrived in 2004, and it was still very much that idea. And when we first arrived, and even when we first came to live there later in that decade, it was still this sense of, of Cambodia being the golden child of development. That this was a this was a country which had, had, had experienced economic growth like few countries had ever experienced before between 1997 and 2000 uh, until the economic crash in 2008. We're seeing Cambodia as one of the top five fastest growing countries in the world, or some sort of somewhere around six, around that order, and. This had been sustained for a decade, even over that 20 years in the first uh, decade of the millennium and the last uh, decade of the previous one. You see Cambodia still remaining in that top 10, which is a really incredible achievement just in numerical terms for a country which had, uh, had been in such uh, incredibly dire straits before that. But in that kind of short period from arriving to live in 2008 until we did our, our last interview really in, in 2018, Cambodia just went from pariah, from, from golden boy, from golden child to pariah uh, over that period. And it's really it's something that we just got the chance with our last interviews to kind of cap things off at and understand really to end on a sort of, if not necessarily pessimistic, then certainly a troubling note. It's a note that troubles the idea of development because of the way in which that optimism has essentially been spent. And in 2018, just to give you an idea of what happened, this was... Um, the year in which really against all of the expectations of international observers, Cambodia saw itself suddenly moving from what had really been in many respects a sham democracy, but a fairly convincing one, to a situation in which that kind of veil was completely torn away and removed. Uh, the Prime Minister, who's been in place now for some 30, almost 35 years, Hun Sen, um, banned the opposition, the main opposition party, the Cambodian National Rescue Party, as a result of their having done surprisingly well in the previous elections, and he imprisoned or exiled the leaders of that party. 
So it was really a kind of final death knell to that 90s optimism, which had driven Cambodia forward for so long and, uh, and, and proven really that essentially economic development, impressive though it has been for 25 years, does not equal necessarily equality, doesn't necessarily equal political freedoms, and it doesn't necessarily equal the wider inevitable development, which has been the story that had been told by development planners up to that point. So in, in, in this microcosm of Cambodian development, we essentially capture the end of one era, the end of the, end of the era of optimism, and the beginning of this era of, of, of pessimism and doubt, in which we really find ourselves now, this far more troubling era of, uh, of, of, uh, of, uh, of uh, polarised opinions and disaggregation of populations and people and ideas. Yeah. I really appreciate the kind of broad swath of people that you talk to in Cambodia, from rice farmers to people who sort of semi-professionally or regularly um, beg for alms at markets, to garment workers, to construction workers. Um, and having talked to all of these people, can you say a little bit about um, kind of their optimism and their expectations from this economic miracle um, and how those kind of developed in relation to the realities that they faced in their lives? I think so on, on, a, on a local level, you know, in 2008, the first five years to 2013 were this kind of period of optimism. This is a period when... Um, the railways came back to Cambodia, the railways that had been destroyed in the war. Um, the first skyscraper in Cambodia was built um, uh, just up the road from, from the flat in which we were living. Um, so you could see these real uh, changes and there was this mood of, of optimism, but it was also um, an era of political repression. Um, so one of the notable things um, in this first five years that the book covers um, was the uh, atmosphere that it was very difficult to talk to people about politics, about everyday politics, about national politics. Um, all of this changed uh, in the middle in 2013. Um, and I think surprised us looking back now. Um, I don't know if you'll disagree with that. But, um, you know, the exiled opposition leader was allowed to return to Cambodia to contest the 2013 election. Um, and government was obviously riding high from this landslide victory that they'd obtained in 2010. Uh, and the moment when the exiled opposition leader was allowed to return to Cambodia was an absolutely transformative mood in Cambodian politics. And it really kind of opened a lid on a lot of the frustrations that people had clearly been sensing for a lot of those five years prior. So I was doing some research out by Pochatong Airport um, the day that the leader was allowed back and um, got caught up in the traffic on the way back. Tens of thousands of people lined the airport road, and there was this one, um, this one mantra that became the uh, the rallying call for the opposition party through the election, the 2013 election, uh, Dome and Dome, uh, which basically means, do you want change or not? Uh, and so people would go up and down the streets in these mass election rallies, Dome and Dome, and the answer was always Dome. Uh, and people could chant that in the streets, and that felt like such a liberation from this previous period in which. Even amongst our kind of close Cambodian friends, it was very difficult to talk about or criticise um, national um, level policy or, or politicians or, or parties. Uh, and it moved kind of changed around 2013. And I think we really kind of got a sense of what people had been keeping a, a lid on throughout these previous five years. Um, unfortunately, it's been 
in the in the kind of five years since, that's been a, a period of increasing uh, repression. Um, we've had 14 youth activists and one really prominent trade union leader arrested in the month of August 2020 alone, um, all to do with kind of this turning point 2013 election, which was nearly a triumph by the uh, opposition, which came as a, quite a big shock, I think, to the government. Um, and yes, so there's people now have a lot less space again to kind of discuss uh, some of the economic concerns that are obviously you know, troubling the country. Yeah, and, and actually, I, mean, I think the way that you actually framed that question, you know, what's the, what, what kind of optimism, to what extent do people have optimism is actually something that chimes a lot with uh, the kind of, some, some of the key themes of the book in particular, uh, the, the, the idea of uh, framing it around narratives, which we find to be something really important in the story development. And that, um, essentially, this idea of narratives is just something that we see as something that allows this flexible conceptual tool which allows um, structures to be moved from one place to a completely different and often completely uh, incomparable context and yet those structures remain. It's essentially the small stories that we tell each other about, uh, the small kind of ideas, the little nuggets of information that become uh, just accepted uh, as axioms. I mean for instance um, the idea that you know what, what kind of people are there in the city? Oh, there's, you know, there's bad people, there's the people that are dangerous there, they steal. These are the kind of simple ideas that structure behavior. The idea that, like, you know, who are we? We're rural people, you know. The city isn't for us. It shapes people's behavior in very fundamental ways. It essentially allows those structures of rural inequality to be transplanted to very different contexts in urban areas. And um, that's also something that we talk about, certainly, um, in terms of, uh, in terms of the gender relations that we discuss in the book, and because it's just so starkly painted in Cambodia, um, one of the things that gets uh, gets spoken about broadly is this uh, this book, the Chibapsray, which means the woman's law, uh, and that's something which is really uh, important in the kind of understanding of how gender operates in Cambodia. Because of course we all have gender norms, you know, structure uh, the way that people behave the world around. But actually, in Cambodia, you have this very unusual situation of having things actually written down. In a, 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 like a repeat, you know, printed text, the woman's law, the man's law, and you have all kinds of things, you know, like a, a woman should walk so that her skirt doesn't rustle, all kinds of uh, uh, kind of uh, um, doctrines of that sort. But what we see so clearly is these kind of stories, just these fundamental nuggets of understanding about what a person should be, what a person or a place or a thing is, totally, totally structure how people behave, what their expectations are and what their optimism is. And so in many ways, how people arrive in their stories of mobility into a different place, those kind of narratives that underpin their movement really fundamentally do shape the ultimate outcomes. And so whereas you see people who are perhaps slightly better off, maybe involved to a greater extent in the urban economy, often saying quite optimistic things about the way in which Cambodia developed the way in which the world is going. People talk about, you know, tangible things like the growth of the buildings, that there being more money, um, that people, you know, now have much nicer clothes, they have jewellery. But then when you see the people who really are left out of this system, again, it, fun it fundamentally comes down to a story. People say uh, this very common phrase, which is one of the things mentioned in the book and really underpins this kind of unequal development, which is the mien ganda mien, pro ganda pro, like the the rich always get richer, the poor always get poorer. And this is the kind of 
mantra that the people who tend to lose out of development always repeat. It's almost uh, self-fulfilling in many ways, but it very much demonstrates a completely uh, fully uh, developed and emic understanding of this kind of dual pathways of development because so many people have been left behind, not only in Cambodia, but elsewhere. And that's something that I think is beginning to um, be reflected more in kind of development discourse. And it's also something that people have an intuitive understanding of themselves. And that's something that perhaps we were able to, uh, to, to, to give the lie to a little earlier before kind of development discourse became um, more pessimistic itself just by talking to people on the street. There was this general understanding that, of course, yeah, developments happened, but not for me. That's, I think, a really good segue um, into this broader question that I want to ask. And I do really want to get into kind of the big themes of this book around inequality um, and how it's um, how it comes to be um, through movement and through discourse. But one thing that I found really, really fascinating about this, the way this book was framed, I mean, starting from the title, which is Going Nowhere Fast, Mobile Inequality in the Age of Translocality. Nowhere in the book title do we see, you know, Cambodia or Southeast Asia. Um, and I appreciate how this book is framed as kind of um, speaking to these issues writ large rather than in a kind of regionally specific way. Um, and particularly, uh, I mean, you mentioned decolonization earlier, right? Um, clearly, in our academic disciplines, um, certain places are allowed to speak to a kind of broader reality, while others are only allowed to speak to their own. Um, could you talk a little bit about how you made the decision to frame this book in this way, and if you faced any pushback to that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, so... I think there is a fundamental methodological point here very much, which is that whereas it's always been assumed that when you want to make a big point, you have to kind of do a big cross-sectional broad methodology. That's the way in which uh, studies of inequality have been done, the way in which studies of development have been done. Um, every aspect of, uh, of global kind of uh, politics and economy, economy and society, and really by unapologetically making a broad global point using only this tiny microcosm of Cambodia, we're making a methodological point alongside it, which is essentially that you can understand just as much, if not more, by going deep and staying small than you can by doing these huge cross-sectional analyses. And it's something really which I think hopefully speaks to a broader kind of methodological audience in development studies and geography and the social sciences more broadly. But um, which comes out of the specific um, constraints of the literature on inequality particularly. So inequality is something which has always been understood in this broad cross-sectional way. Um, and that's something that we see as having huge shortcomings. Cross-sectional analyses are by their very nature uh, shallow. They have to be in order to be comparable. You're only choosing a selection of indicators which you can move between countries. And of course those Initial indicators are very much from your preconceptions. That's the nature of quantitative cross-sectional research. That's just how it is. And of course, it has many advantages. But what we're saying here is that by taking a completely different perspective, you can actually say just as much and just as much of value about the way in which something like inequality works and the way in which development works. And that this is really an approach that we feel has, um, has huge kind of importance going forward in terms of development because 
these kind of in-depth, multifaceted, long-term, longitudinal studies are really quite rare in, in the social sciences, just because of the, I mean, almost just because of the economics and the, the everyday um, life cycle nature of these uh, of these uh, of these projects. I mean, very rarely do people have the opportunity and really the great privilege to spend so long doing so many interrelated studies. And this is a patchwork. I mean, it is a kind of it's a quilt of analyses, a quilt of projects, all coming together in order to make a wider point. It's essentially a disaggregated understanding of this this broader context of Cambodia and and I think by taking this kind of much more long-term slower approach to scholarship I hope that perhaps as well as making the points that we are making there might be a kind of broader transition towards understanding a longer term a more longitudinal and really a kind of more expertise based and and personal development based approach to these kind of methods rather than the, the very appealing initial kind of cross-sectional approach, which has been, always been the, the way in which inequality has been understood, just by the by, if we're talking about inequality, that's something which by, whether you're talking about Piketty or, uh, or Danny Dawling, all excellent authors, um, but very much it's just been standard that we talk about multiple countries, because otherwise how can you make your point? It's saying you don't need to. The, the smaller points can be just as well expressed through a tiny context. Yeah, and I definitely think the decision around the title is very conscious and we have had uh, conversations with colleagues about do we need to have Cambodia in the title. Um, but I think you know, our consensus is that in, in a lot of journal articles and books, if you're writing about the global north, you often don't need to put your research location in the title, whereas if you're writing on the south, you often do. And it's a very conscious choice for us that although this book is set in Cambodia, it's not just about Cambodia, it's our chance to kind of theorise back from Cambodia um, so yeah, we've, we we kind of have we haven't had any pushback from from the publishers or anything, but it's something that it does come up in conversation. Do we do we need to put Cambodia in there? And we've gone for no. So <laughs> yeah, we're allowing to Cambodia to speak to a broader audience of itself without any apologies or or caveats. Excellent. Um, so just to kind of frame the discussion of what happens in the book. Can you talk a little bit about what inequality means in this context um, and how you approached it? Um, yeah, so just to, just to start off, I mean, so inequality is really um, at the core of the book, of course. Um, and I think I've really begun to um, explore that point um, in my previous point about the, uh, the, the the opposition to this cross-sectional understanding of inequality. So one of the things that we really want to explode as a kind of myth is this idea of the, uh, the kind of teleological inevitability of uh, inequality uh, and the change in inequality over time. So one of the things we talk about uh, in Chapter 2 in particular is this idea of the Kuznets curve. And that's, that's really the kind of big point of opposition from which we begin the book. So the Kuznets curve, to give everyone a background, is just this idea that in 1955 was, uh, was, was published. Uh, who, uh, and this was, a, this was a, a, an analysis based on three countries. It was the US, the UK and Germany. And it tracked these countries from around the middle of the 19th century through to the middle of the 20th century. And it showed that from that period through to around 1950, there was an initial rise in inequality as industrialization proceeded, 
and then there was a, uh, a subsequent fall. Now, Kuznets initially proposed this um, initially proposed this model uh, in 1953 at the American Association of Economists, and at that time. He very much um, emphasized that this is just a case study. We have these three countries, they're not reflective of the world. Then in 1955, he came back with this paper and it was a universal model, exactly the same data. Now, of course, we understand now that this is very much under the pressure of a kind of McCarthyite uh, context, which very much wanted to present the idea of you know, capitalist progress as being a kind of inevitable progression towards improvement and the betterment of all. That's one of the key things which underpinned that transition. And yet, despite its huge weakness, I mean, we don't have to look long at the Kuznets model, just what I've just told you in terms of the context that we're looking at. Germany, the US, and the UK between 1850 and 1950, there's a fair amount that happened here that perhaps are external variables in the story of their economic development. And yet this continues to be presented as a universal model. So that is really the kind of, you can almost call it, I mean, it should be a straw man, and yet this is very much... A, a continued point of reference for you know plans of all, all descriptions. That is the point at which we are um, set up against. But there's a second point also, um, which is essentially that the measures of inequality that we use, which are there are only a, a specific number of them, essentially the Gini, the Palmer, and the Thiel indexes, they are presented as objective measures of inequality, and yet they are only appropriate for use in very specific places. Um, for example, um, if we take um, um, the Gini index is a slightly more complex um, uh, interpretation. It's the area underneath the Lorenz curve, but it's essentially the same idea. It's measuring the proportion of the population who have an income at one at the top versus the proportion of the income uh, of population who have income at the bottom. Uh, and the Thiel index is the simplest form of that. It's just top uh, 10% versus bottom 40% a ratio. So this, of course, makes sense in some ways. That's an important ratio to understand. And yet, if we think about this in Cambodia, immediately problems present itself to anybody who knows this context. For a start, why are we talking about the top 10%? Why the bottom 40%? The bottom 40% is kind of seen as a, you know, perhaps a, a sort of certain section of the population, maybe in the West, in Europe, that's a, a defined particular uh, proportion of the population. And the top 10% is seen as traditionally a kind of area of elitism. Um, but in Cambodia, there's just that sort of model, that shape doesn't exist. You have a far larger area of people who are in quite similar uh, situations and then a relatively small area of, of, of extreme, uh, of relative urban wealth at the top and then this huge extreme wealth right at the top. So immediately, just by having this very simple uh, disaggregation, you've got a problem. But then even if you look at it more fundamentally in terms of income itself, and you've got an even bigger problem, which is that at the very top and at the very bottom, people don't earn income in clearly defined ways. Farmers don't earn income in cash. They tend to earn it in, uh, in kind or in goods or even, you know, in social connections, in favours. And at the very top, people who are, you know, the real kind of elite in charge of Cambodia, they're also not earning money either. They're earning, you know, land concessions. They're earning huge tracts of lands. They're earning buildings. And they're certainly not recording this anywhere. So the very idea that people are confidently stating about Cambodia is just like, which is often said, it's like, oh, Cambodia's inequality rose briefly in the mid-2000s and it fell again. It's just like, no, this is that you're measuring something completely irrelevant to what is actually happening in Cambodia. So one of the things that by just being so kind of 
bloody-mindedly complex in this book is just to show how these simple measures of inequality, but really anything about people's lives, cannot be boiled down to these simple statistics. They can't be. Uh, there, there is no simple way of looking at a very, very complex issue like inequality. Thank you. Um, so I think that that is a really good kind of basis to think about um, the the lived experiences that you talk about in the book. Um, and there are so many really um, interesting and kind of sad and moving stories um, that really kind of offer an alternative perspective on what inequality means. So just to kind of start thinking about that, can you talk to listeners a bit about these unusual connections that you make? So like how is a rice field connected to a garment factory connected to um, kind of a beggar in an open air market? Um, how do these things all come together? Yeah, I mean, I think as well, one, one of the key one of the key aspects of inequality that we're trying to get at in the book and, you know, with these lived, uh, very ground-level stories of people's experiences is the, the fine-grained inequality that exists, not just between, as Laurie is saying, the top 10% and the, the bottom 10% of Cambodians, but even within a village, uh, inequality is very finely textured and there's a big difference between um, people's life chances and, and the outcomes from their migratory uh, work. Um, based on the kind of context that they originated from. There's a big, I think, um, idea among development planners that if people have um, limited uh, life chances in the rural area and they can migrate to urban work, then they can migrate out of poverty, right? The idea of migrating out of poverty is a thing that, in, that informs development discourse. But actually, uh, poverty follows you wherever you go. And in Cambodia, it's very um, densely structured through these uh, networks of obligations uh, that tie family and, and neighbourhoods together. Um, so the way that people migrate for urban work is through these networks of, uh, of family and, and information and resources. But when you are a female worker, when you go to work in the garment sector in Cambodia, you, you remain responsible for your parents who can't migrate for work and remain tied to uh, the rural village. Um, and so the book really is exploring all these different ways in which these uh, networks of obligations, as, as, as we call them, uh, structures people's ability or shapes people's ability to um, progress uh, and make uh, successes of, of, of migrant life. Yeah, I know. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I think from, from our experience, you know, translocality is often one of the things that when we're discussing our work, people, you know, have to, that takes a little bit of explaining. It's like, it sounds like a complicated abstract concept. This idea that kind of, you know, different aspects of well-being and inequality and economic, you know, economics at any scale are kind of structured across multiple places. And it, indeed it is, you know, if you try and explain it on a graph, if you try and explain this as a kind of, you know, in a chart sense, it does look rather complicated, but is something which is intuitively understood in, in, in the field of many people's lives and is something which really kind of emically emerges from just talking to people. Um, translocality isn't just something that we impose on people's, uh, on understanding people's lives. It was something that just seemed, when we first, I mean, I discovered this concept long after starting to research Cambodia. Translocality was something, you know, I was just... Uh, I said to Sabine, you know, like, have you heard about this idea of translocality? Like, this is really interesting. 
And this was like 2011 or something like that, three years or more after starting to research. And suddenly, you know, things like that, they just really click. And it's just like, oh, that's the thing that actually explains what all these people are doing. But the key reason why translocality is different to, for instance, uh, models like the new economics of labor migration, where you just structure household economies and people will contribute to that. It's very much like that. A translocality essentially tries to go broadly beyond just the economics of it. Essentially, this is something that shows you that the ideas which structure your life, the, the culture um, in which you live, um, the norms through which you structure your own behavior, as well as the economic dimensions of that behavior, are fundamentally co-constituted amongst multiple places. So nobody really lives in one place. We are a conversation between multiple places. And that is uh, a way that speaks to the experiences of many people, certainly in a small and highly mobile country like Cambodia. But I think also very much to, uh, to many of us, even, even in the global north, we're so conditioned to think in terms of this, essentially what is a neoliberal subjective model of human behavior, this atomized sense of the individual self. But in fact, we just don't see the connections that we have to other people and the way in which they structure our behavior. And that's particularly clear if we move beyond just thinking about the money. I mean, think about, for instance, the ways in which your connections to different places shape your attitudes and preferences in, uh, in, in, the, uh, in the everyday world. I mean, for instance, the place in which you went to university, places that you are perhaps very familiar with, Many people these days are, are migrants in one sense or another, having, for instance, in the UK moved from, uh, from you know, a city outside of London into London, or having made the move out of London, or simply having parents or relatives in a different place. Your worldview is structured by more than one place. And if you understand your behaviour and your well-being and your, your general inequality as being rooted not just in economic factors, but in cultural and social factors as well, and it becomes clear that we are a product of all of these multiple places in conversation with each other. Yeah, I really enjoyed your framing of this issue of mobility and how it's perceived. You know, where I come from in the United States, um, people are often horrified to learn that various anti-migrant um, politicians were themselves born in different countries or born to immigrants. Um, and I really, really liked the way that you framed this kind of mobile nationalism um, as a foreclosure of certain kinds of mobility um, while while at the same time recognizing the legitimacy of different forms of mobility. Can you talk a little bit about how you kind of came to that concept um, in relation to the 2013 elections? Um, and yeah. Yeah, I mean, this is something, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, the nationalism of Cambodia, the emerging nationalism of Cambodia is really uh, is a really interesting case. Um, and I think it's very central to the book. There's a reason that we've kind of taken this progression, I think, um, uh, from, I mean, there's a trajectory to this book, which I, I hope comes across to the reader, which is essentially that it moves from these very objective, quite traditional, in many ways, quite desiccated uh, mathematical models of inequality through to an increasingly kind of a cultural and uh, broadly defined idea of what inequality is and what exclusion is and what stigma is. And that chapter seven really is the kind of scaling up and to understand the full implications of 
of, of the framings, the complex framings that we're trying to use in the book. And the reason that that chapter is the last one is because it brings out um, the experience of the garment industry in all its kind of complex translocal roots that we've outlined as a kind of catalyst for um, enormous social upheaval. So the garment industry, as we've described, and I think Sabina mentioned earlier, um, the, the garment industry was at the centre of those uh, political upheavals which happened in 2013, then again in 2017 and 18, when ultimately the opposition was disbanded. So when, uh, as Sabina mentioned, when Sam Rainsy came back and 100,000 people lined the road from the airport and we were all caught up in the traffic and hugely excited by what was going on, his power base was the garment industry. He had essentially uh, been cultivating um, a power base within the garment industry with some prescience, really, to understand that this was where the, uh, the, the new power in, in the country, um, in a country dominated by that industry, would be. And so by th 2013, there was already about half a million people working in the garment industry, all of whom had a much more um, progressive and perhaps urban viewpoint um, on, on, on the country and where it was going than, than did the traditional rural power base that was cultivated by uh, the Prime Minister Hun Sen. And so this kind of opposition between rural and urban industry and agriculture was absolutely at the centre of that kind of contestation which began in 2013 and then subsequently, um, and sub subsequently reached its kind of peak in, in 2018. Yeah, and, and I hope it kind of speaks to the kind of you know, trajectories of the radical right globally. Um, I think in Cambodia you have a situation that resonates with what we're seeing in the UK with the Brexit vote and what we're seeing in the USA with the election of Trump. And, you know, we're seeing it across Europe, uh, Victor Orban in, in Hungary. Um, we're seeing it through Southeast Asia with this kind of rise of Rodrigo Duterte. Like what explains this rise in kind of illiberal democracy and authoritarian politics? And if you look at this kind of case study of Cambodia, you can really see how it's really rooted in people's everyday frustrations with this um, failed kind of neoliberal trajectory of development, that you've had these boom years that, 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 that the people who've been, they should have most been benefiting from this economic boom, uh, this decade of double-digit growth to 2007, these garment workers, the growth is not trickling down as it's, you know, purported to into their everyday lives um, from 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 2001, when the minimum wage was introduced for the garment sector in Cambodia at $45 a month to 2013, real wages were actually falling, so people's standards of living were actually getting worse. Um, that's obviously a very real concern for people. Um, and what's really interesting is the way that the uh, opposition party in Cambodia, though they have these very strong links with the, with the, uh, with the trade unions in Cambodia because they actually cultivated, um, cultivated a lot of the, the trade union movement um, one of the trade unionists said to me uh, recently, you know, Sam Rainsy, that's the exiled opposition leader who was allowed to return. Sam Rainsy brought the word union to Cambodians almost in this kind of biblical sense. But although they obviously have this very, um, you know, ingrained understanding of what the frustrations of many, many garment workers are uh, and, you know, and, and kind of levels of exploitation and stagnating life chances and stagnating living conditions, what the opposition has largely drawn on in Cambodia is this uh, conception of uh, the uh, Vietnamese uh, invaders. Uh, the, the, uh, and it, it's very interesting to me how this kind of um, this kind of right wing agenda that doesn't always come through in the opposition's 
English language uh, pronouncements, but um, it definitely resonates with um, a lot of what we're seeing in, in, in other places in, in Europe and USA. And I hope, again, you know, it's another way in which kind of this is a book that kind of theorizes from the South and, and shows how these contexts that seem on the kind of global periphery are actually very much at the heart of um, what's happening uh, with broader global politics. Yeah, and I think exactly one of the key things that we're just trying to get across is that mobility is just at the centre of all of these, so many of these kind of disaggregations and contestations that are happening in the world today. And that's not a new thing. It's something um, which, of course, goes back to you know any number of years. I mean, if we just think about any kind of the, the hot issues that I just think off the top of my head in the UK that were always in the papers, you know, it's immigration. Climate migration is something that was in the paper that I work a lot on. It's often in the paper as a kind of future threat. And we even get, you know, Greta Thunberg, as you know, so enlightened on so many aspects of climate change, talking about, oh, climate migration is a terrifying thing. She quotes, um, she quotes uh, uh, you know, reports about, you know, millions or billions of, of migrants moving into Europe. Very much this kind of scaremongering of mobility. And, uh, you know, even things like expanding cities, and, uh, and the movement uh, across borders and the movement of borders themselves. Essentially, if we just look at these contestations throughout history and throughout the world today, so much of it is essentially just challenging this, uh, this idea of mobility, just the sense that mobility is an aberration, that it, that it kind of opposes the, uh, the status quo of stasis, that stasis is, has its kind of in, inherent goodness that's being challenged by mobility and change. But in fact, Mobility is very much, you know, it just undergirds everything that we ever do and more so now than ever. I think we have to understand that in this world, which is not only, well, as I think I mentioned in the, uh, in the introduction, um, this isn't necessarily the kind of gross, most mobile era in which we live. If you look at the 19th century, there were periods when these enormous migrations were happening on a, as a proportion of the world, that maybe an incomparable scale. But in terms of Translocality in terms of our connections to other areas. We've never been more connected to other parts of the world. We've never been more conceptually mobile. But our frame of analysis of which we understand these broad conflicts and these, um, these hugely important political contestations continues to be framed statically. We have to essentially understand, in order to understand why people are so... Um, uh, why people oppose each other in contexts like in Cambodia and in the wider world, as we can see, for instance, in many parts of Europe and the US with the contestations between, you know, right and left and the culture wars that are going on. In order to understand those phenomena as, uh, as, as processes in themselves, we have to take a mobile lens on them. These aren't things which are created in place. They are something which is rooted in wider processes of global development, global movement. And they're rooted in, uh, in wider economic changes. Certainly, if we look at that issue of the rise of the far right in the world today across so many countries, this is something that has its roots very much in an understanding of inequality, which you have to take a global approach to. If you look at who has gained in terms of income over the last, uh, over the last uh, 30 years since the rise of uh, really neoliberalism unfettered, we've seen gains in most parts of the world, the poorest people in the world, at least in that kind of very dodgy sort of income terms have, have, uh, have improved uh, their, their, their income, largely due to the rise of China. And the richest people in the world have increased their incomes a whole, you know, an awful lot more, hundreds of times more. But then in the middle, the traditional 
kind of middle of the world income range, essentially the people who would have traditionally formed the working classes of places like the US and Europe have seen their incomes relatively dip as manufacturing is exported to the global south. And so that movement of economy, of people, and of kind of conceptual importance has really underpinned the rise of so many of the political contestations that we see today. And what's interesting is that by looking at this kind of the other side of that process, really, in a place which has gained manufacturing, you can still see these same processes of division. It's essentially that process of movement has underpinned wider cultural shifts, which, are, which have a, a very uh, broad global resonance, we think. I definitely agree, and I appreciate how you connect it to this kind of global articulation of right-wing politics. Something that I hear a lot um, is this idea, and particularly in terms of like the white working class male grievance, um, that people are doing the right things, they're coming up kind of in the way that they've been raised to. So in a kind of global North context, that might mean finishing secondary school, moving on to university, um, graduating, finding a job. Um, and those people are then kind of hitting a wall. Um, and I'm really interested in the way that that kind of narrative also works in the context that you're working in. Um, where you have people who are doing kind of the right things in terms of a developmentalist outlook, moving to the cities, remitting um, back to their homes, and yet they can never kind of manage um, to climb up the ladder um, to the point that some of them um, even kind of go to markets and beg part of the year, even though they're kind of people who earn money. Um, they're not people who are completely destitute. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, what that experience is like for those people and also how it fits into your understanding of mobile inequality? I think it comes back again you know, to this idea of stunted optimism. And you know, you have to take into account the fact that the book stretches over these 10 years, 2008 to, to around 2018. So people's perceptions of what, for example, the garment sector men have changed faster over those 10 years. So in, in 2008, when a lot of people working in the garment sector were young uh, women, often single girls who came from households, they didn't have very much education, but they were making a relatively good income compared to what you could make back in the village. So there was a, you know, optimism about this kind of work can, can, can be a stepping stone to something else. But now you talk to people in the garment sector in 2018, it's the same people. They've been working in the sector for 15, 20 years. And all that optimism that was there in you know 2008 when people had entered the sector and they hoped that they'd be able to save their way out of the sector. Um, a lot of people that we were talking to around the time you know of, of writing the book, they um, had these ambitions to become tailors or to go back home to rural villages and open new businesses there. But over the, you know, the last ten years, it's been shown kind of how impossible this is, and it's you know been 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 really been come to the fore with the impacts of kind of COVID-19 on Cambodia, the, the, the you know, the fragility of, of an export-led economy that's that's entirely almost dependent on these global supply chains. Um, what we've seen since uh, the pandemic has closed down a lot of manufacturing in Cambodia is that, um, you know, what people have been relying on is not their incomes, but they've been subsidising this through vast amounts of debt. 
Um, so it's really kind of exposed the, the frailty on which people's livelihoods in this kind of you know economic boom period have, have been built. Um, and you know, in 2018, if you if you talk to a garment worker about the prospects for life after the garment industry, you get a, a very different answer than than if you could talk to those same people in in 2008 when the garment sector was seen as a route to something else. Whereas now, 10 years later, if you're still stuck in the industry, but now you have um, you know three children to feed on 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 a small wage, it's it's become much harder for people. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think this speaks to uh, the, the particular thing that you you raised there is the this, uh, this surprisingly close intersection between almost destitution or the practice of what looks like destitution and, and apparent employment. And that's something that surprised us certainly when we were looking into things that you'd get, you know, a garment worker sleeping on the street next to, um, you know, their mother who's begging. Or, you know, you have this very close interrelationship between waged work and, uh, and uh, arms-seeking behaviour. Um, but I think that does speak to a very wider point about you know, this process of development and growth in the world more generally and certainly in Cambodia specifically, one which is framed by the book. Because when we first arrived in 2008, although this was, as we've said, a period of great optimism, nevertheless, of course, 2008 was a period of great uh, of great upheaval. That was the, the year of the, of the financial crash. And we arrived to a period in which people who had jobs in the garment industry were really struggling. And so understanding why they were struggling, despite the fact that they supposedly had this job, was a key part of the research that we were doing then and the questions that we were asking then. Of course, as we've shown in the book, it's about the fact that they had so many obligations and the fact that they had such little bargaining power to kind of shape the circumstances around them. As soon as they got a $5 raise, then, you know, the, 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 the landlord puts up their rent by $5 and immediately that goes straight out of their pocket. So um, you have that on the one hand. And then now, you know, 12 years later, we have this situation um, of COVID-19 where, you know, hundreds of factories have shut down. People are once again reduced to a kind of skeleton working practice, no overtime uh, and really not enough money to meet their needs, certainly their wider uh, kind of translocal obligations. And I think one of the things we, we want to get across is that this isn't, neither of those two circumstances, 12 years apart, is an aberration and should be seen as a kind of unusual situation that is that is that that is the norm in these kind of global industries people are kept on the kind of knife edge of subsistence uh, and just retained there while all is well and then as soon as anything goes wrong that kind of precarity that descent into crisis is a part of the global system of manufacturing uh, and our global economy as we as we kind of currently envision it um, that's something that our colleague and mentor Catherine Bikel, also a great writer on Cambodia, calls Crisis Ordinary in her book, also out this year. And so, and we think that's, you know, something that speaks very much to our perspective on this, that we live in a global economic system which keeps people on the knife edge. And you can't only say that, you know, that balancing on the top of the knife edge is the, is the system. Falling either way, is that's, that's, also, that's also part of it. And it's a key a key dimension of what we want to get across, that that sort of precarity is an integral part of the system, not something that happens when it breaks. I'm glad that you both raised the issue of kind of debt and precarity, because it struck me that it was one of relatively few kind of explicit appearances of the development NGO complex, um, which was microfinance, um, which appeared again and again. 
Um, and I'm struggling to find a way to phrase this question in a way that isn't um, hostile or aggressive to the uh, NGO development complex. So I think I'll just put it the way I want to, which is, have they done anything good? Have they accomplished any good in your eyes in Cambodia? Or um, has this profusion of debt um, just led to more destitution, more pain, more inequality? Um, well, so I, I mean, this is too, I mean, the NGO, the NGO world, I guess, and, and debt is too slightly too well. It's very much part of the same spectrum. I could probably deal with them separately. I mean, just to, just to frame this, one of the things that, um, as well as a trajectory through Cambodia's kind of shift over this last 12 years, this is also a book which kind of frames our own trajectory of development. I mean, just to give you an idea, I mean, an idea of where we've come from. As I've said, we started as master's students, knowing very little, being thrown into the field, then doing PhDs and looking at that theoretical stuff and kind of the understanding methodology in a much more complex way and that's showing a whole new light on things but then actually after the PhDs for two years we both worked uh, as consultants for NGOs so we were very much inside that kind of complex and you understand how fundamentally embedded uh, NGOs are in the Cambodian state. Now the reason that I guess they're not more treated is just because the they are not seen why the subjects that we're speaking about as fundamental agents in their lives, which isn't to necessarily say that they're not important, but more perhaps that they kind of function as a sort of pseudo state, which isn't necessarily seen. One of the things that uh, I certainly learned by working with a variety of NGOs, many of which do very good work, is that in so many parts of the country, NGOs are essentially left to take up a certain amount of the work of what that would normally be done by a state, for instance, school meals, providing uh, providing infrastructure, all kinds of things. But they're not, yeah, I mean, in terms of, I think, the way in which NGOs perhaps envision themselves and the way in which people outside of the NGO world envision NGOs as a kind of interventionist change-making body that isn't the way that it's seen necessarily from the ground up. It's more a case of stasis, integration, and involvement in the work of the state. It's a question of stability. Now, that may well be something that NGOs in general see them see as a positive thing, as in they're kind of propping up an otherwise weak state and making it function, or it may be seen as a failing in that, that transformative change doesn't tend to be um, at least evident to the people who are perhaps its subjects. But I will just speak quickly to the issue of debt, because that's something which is such a hot topic at the moment. Now, this is um, Cambodia, you know, although, I mean, very special in so many ways, but another way in which it distinguishes itself is it's being the most heavily indebted country by microfinance debt per capita in, in the entire world, closely followed by, I think, Bangladesh. But um, this is an enormously over-indebted country. Um, with a huge number of NGOs, uh, sorry, of microfinance institutions um, working to compete with each other for the uh, for for the debt of uh, people in the country. I think the average, uh, yeah, I mean, the average um, debt holding is, is thousands. It's really enormous when you consider it's more certainly more than the average income per capita. Um, and this is of course completely unsustainable because people, there is no way that they can possibly hope to, you know 
recoup and repay three years of wages, which is what they on average owe a household. So um, it is essentially a bubble. And yet, nevertheless, those, M those uh, MFIs, those microfinance institutions, have been sold from one uh, kind of holding, international holding organization, one financial conglomerate to another, and then more recently to another. So essentially, they've been sold for huge profits, become enormously profitable. And yet, the benefit that they brought to the country at all is really not necessarily distinguishable. And that's actually something that, well, I mean, indeed, it is a project that I'm currently working on is very much focused on specifically that issue. Um, it's, it's something which is absolutely enormous, and it's a key kind of driver of disaggregation and bifurcation between people, because the ways in which you use debt, it's almost an accelerator of the inequalities that you start with. If you find yourself using debt merely for consumption, then you just, you know, it essentially becomes more and more expensive to consume as you have to meet those uh, meet those interest repayments. Or rather, another way of putting it is that your wage goes down and down and down as more of it is taken up with interest. Whereas on the other hand, if you are able to invest, which a relatively small proportion of people are genuinely able to productively invest and safely invest, then... Um, you know, you can have these enormous balloonings in your income and a really, a really genuine improvement in the livelihoods of, uh, of, of your household. But that kind of the conditions which structure that is not as we would like to believe, or at least some people believe, all about your entrepreneurial plug. It's very much structured around the kind of conditions that you initially find yourself in. Although some people will be able to make good use of a loan from a very low base, the chance of doing so is very small. It's a numbers game. The risk of failing is huge. And one of the projects that I've been involved in um, in the aftermath of, of writing this book called Blood Bricks is something that really looks specifically at the downside of what happens when you take on one of those loans and you can't repay it and the, um, and the interest payments build up and up and you end up reaching the, the end game. So Blood Bricks is about uh, debt-bonded uh, debt bonded brick workers in the Cambodian brick industry who are often bonded to uh, work in a kiln. They're not allowed to work anywhere else. They don't receive a regular income. They receive a piece rate, most of which is cut by the owner. And it's a very, very difficult, dangerous, uncomfortable and unhealthy job in which many people die on a regular basis and they're not allowed to leave. So in Cambodia, this is, for many people, the end game of, of microfinance. And so understanding this huge precarity from their other side, not just income, but also, you know, debit is certainly something that we see as enormously important and it undergirds all of these precarities um, that we talk about more generally because <clears throat> if people would just be allowed to, to you know, keep their income to spend it rather than you know, sending it all to the microfinance institution in many cases they'd be vastly better off so if you want, yeah, I mean I find it very difficult to say a huge amount positive about microfinance in Cambodia it's been essentially, well Vampiric. <laughs> uh, there's not much better way of saying it. Well, thank you. Um, I think that you've done a lot of the work in framing my next question. <laughs> um, so I appreciate that. I think what your answer there really brought out is the way that um, kind of people's vulnerable bodies are directly linked to um, this complex of development. 
um, and to the issues of inequality you raise. Um, and so in that way, this kind of issue of political economy is actually also kind of geopolitical in a sense. Um, so can you talk a bit about um, the way that you close the book and talking about this kind of geopolitical mark on Cambodia's soil? Certainly, I think there's a lot to say about the geo, like the feminist geopolitics of this, you know, the embodied geopolitics of it in the, in the garment industry. Um, like the health and safety dimensions, I think that's something that you've been working on a, a lot, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, at the moment, I think one of the one of the key things that's happened in the in the intervening years since we finished writing the books so in the last couple of years is, um, you know. Cambodia's kind of ongoing um, strategic location within kind of broader geopolitical struggles has been much more um, revealed. We've had um, all the kind of impacts of the US-China um, trade one, and some of that is just beginning to kind of shape what's what's happening in Cambodia now. And um, in in you know in many ways, like the, 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 the a lot of the, the things that we talk about in, in the book have actually gone on to have like significant geopolitical consequences that we we couldn't have foreseen when we were writing the book. The um, the 2013 um, political rallies that turned into big protests, that turned into uh, explosions that we that we witnessed um, when we were there for the elections in 2013, and the this atmosphere of political repression since, and particularly uh, repression of uh, garment workers' freedoms, has um, you know attracted the ire of, of the EU. The you know the the, the the big growth of Cambodia's garment industry is very much uh, tied to the granting of special trade privileges privileges with the EU and, and the US and Cambodia's um, record of uh, repression of fundamental freedoms of assembly and association and expression has, has now been challenged by the EU and by the US and those trade privileges are now in the process of being partially withdrawn by the EU and and um, and in, and potentially being withdrawn by the US as well and it's really shaping Cambodia's uh, own um, aspirations about how it kind of wants to geostrategically align itself. There's been you know, a lot of talk about kind of move uh, towards um, Chinese investment as a result of kind of shifting ties with the with the EU and uh, the USA. So there is this kind of um, whole kind of geopolitical uh, proxy war that is ongoing uh, in Cambodia. But you know that has been the case in Cambodia for for, for decades, if not, if not centuries. Yeah, and it's very much felt and kind of played out in in, in people's in people's bodies. Is is the key thing, really? I mean, the fleshy geopolitics of it is immediately apparent, uh, and that's like one of the things, yeah, that we that we really do want to get across. That you know, like these kind of, it's not just numbers, it's not just geopolitics. Geopolitics is is very much an embodied experience, and you can see things like when we talk about those MFIs, you know, those microfinance institutions having been bought as part of. Uh, wider financial consolidation um, and the ideas of financial integration when those ideas get put into play through kind of international organizations and NGOs what happens in the long run is this kind of you know that's felt actually in, in, in people's flesh and one of the things that we really see in the garment industry in particular just as a microcosm of wider issues is this huge distinction in livelihoods despite the fact that people are earning the same in the garment industry in particular, and notably the same, it's a hugely economically equal in principle uh, industry in terms of the, um, in terms of just income alone, but the livelihoods are vastly distinct. And you see people who are really struggling physically just to get out of bed, who are eating the cheapest food, who are constantly sick, who are struggling on 
um, you know, really in, in a huge amount of physical distress um, compared to people who are being able to leverage that job as part of a kind of journey towards well, wealth in the first instance and, and health uh, as they do it. Um, and so certainly that is a key thing that we see that as these kind of global contestations of ideas and of politics, these vast sweeps um, which are kind of encapsulated in Cambodia's pivot from the EU to China, which underpins a lot of the kind of uh, story of what we've seen in that last section of, of, of the book, that those are felt nowhere more kind of physically than in the bodies of the people who work in the industries that clothe us and indeed feed us. So taking that broad view is something that we're very keen to do. Thank you. Um, so as we begin to wrap up, um, we've heard a little bit about how COVID has shaped um, Cambodia today, but I was wondering, just kind of in general, since you um, sent this book to press, has there been anything that's shaped your thinking or um, any kind of thoughts about how um, this post-pandemic reality is going to shape um, the lives of the people that you worked with um, in your research? Well, I think you know the two years since the book went to went to press, or that you know was we finished kind of writing it, have been um, you know two periods of remarkable change in Cambodia around the world, um, and it's it's stuff that we're following up basically with, with new uh, research projects, and in many ways, like the the last two years have shown, I think, how prescient a lot of the ideas that we try and pull through in the book actually proved to be. Um, you know, the 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 electoral uh, political violence that kind of rounds off the book in that chapter seven. Has you know now turned into the uh, opposition party as once again being um, uh, exiled and arrested. So we've kind of gone full circle with the birth of this uh, opposition movement in 2013, midway through the book, and, and now it's been uh, now it's been um, now it's been uh, barred the, the CNRP. Um, so that's one kind of key political change that's happening uh, nationally, um, but also you know the, the the consequences of the pandemic really kind of to me uh, expose just how frail the uh, development process in Cambodia has been, just how kind of um, superficial the changes to people's livelihoods have been and how insecure incomes have, have, have remained. Um, and, and post-pandemic, the, you know, the path to recovery, now that the, now the EU has withdrawn uh, trade privileges and the, the US is looking to do the same, is, is, is rocky. And, um, you know, the, these last 10 years that we've been documenting, you know, Cambodia's kind of boom years, and it's, I think it's a very uncertain future ahead. Yeah, and I mean, in terms of the, yeah, I mean, I think the, the primary uh, development in my thinking along those lines is, is very much that it is one which, having spent so long looking upwards from the ground up in Cambodia, I'm now essentially trying to meet those, uh, those, uh, those, concepts developed there from the other side and to understand how the processes that we specifically are involved in, how the economies that we depend on are so crucial to shaping those experiences, those inequalities and those structures. Um, I think that's absolutely vital to understand and certainly the work that I'm doing now, um, looking at the ways in which um, global trade and in particular UK trade shapes the impacts of climate change in the global south in places like Cambodia uh, and it worsens its impacts for many people, as well as, of course, contributing to um, global heating and carbon emissions. 
Um, that work really is an effort more broadly to place the responsibility for circumstances in which people find themselves so far away in these, uh, in these, uh, in what appear in, in the global north to be remote areas, um, on the shoulders of the people who benefit from it, from it, which is us. I mean, with the people wearing the cheap clothes, with the people eating the the cheap food and benefiting from you know a very uh, a very cost effective system of global trade. It's essentially, I guess, what we could call an ethical translocality to understand that by involving ourselves and benefiting from these systems, we have a responsibility to treat people in the global south, in places like Cambodia, as connected to us, as people who have, uh, who are the recipients of our responsibility and who um, should be treated essentially in the same way as if they were, if they did happen to find themselves within our borders. We've moved our factories, moved our economies beyond our own borders, and there are responsibilities, of course, that, well, I argue, that go, that go with that. That's something we need to recognize as we go on. Thanks so much. Um, so you've talked to, both talked a little bit about um, what you're currently working on, but I was wondering if there's anything else you want to mention, any pieces that have come out recently or coming out soon, um, and if there's anywhere on the internet that our listeners can find you to follow your work. Oh well, yes, well, you can certainly find us on Twitter. I'm at Laurie F.D. Parsons. And um, I'm at Sabine Levin. I love followers, so do, yeah. do, <laughs> do click. So, um, yeah, and, and it, would be, it would be brilliant to have, uh, have people uh, make any comments that they can on our work. I mean, in terms of the things that I'm personally working on now, as I've said, I'm working in terms of looking at the dynamics of global trade, but focusing especially uh, to a greater extent on the environmental dimension. So what I'm really working on now is this idea of, of disasters being shaped by our trade practices here in the UK. So I'm remaining in Cambodia to some extent, but broadening out into places like Bangladesh and Sri Lanka, understanding how our UK trade products that we buy shape the impacts of climate change by um, enhancing precarities in the areas in which they operate. Um, uh, and, and related to that, I guess, generally attempting to explode and contest the idea of the uh, the, 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 the environmental determinism that's crept back into our understanding of climate impacts, um, uh, opposing this idea of climate migrants as kind of, you know, the climate barbarians uh, at the gate, as, as Giacomo, uh, Giacomo Bettini, uh, Giovanni Bettini uh, calls them. Um, essentially, rather than seeing people uh, affected by climate change as a faceless horde, seeing them as essentially part of our economic systems and very much some a population of people that we have responsibilities to and can do something uh, about the problems. And I, and I have two ongoing projects that both relate to those kind of two trends that, that just mentioned. Um, uh, part, you know, my, my Nottingham Research Fellowship is looking at kind of this intimate geopolitics of uh, women's health and safety in the global garment industry, but I'll also be working on um, a new project um, just launching with um, Catherine Brickell, who um, Laurie mentioned there is as a, as, a, as a colleague and great mentor of ours who's, who does great writing on Cambodia. Um, it's it called the Refashion Project. It's going to be looking at the impact of COVID-19 on, on garment workers and, and how we can kind of build um, more just supply chains in the future to kind of prevent the kind of uh, devastation that we've seen uh, the pandemic kind of having on those uh, garment worker livelihoods um, from, from recurring. Yeah, and if you'd like to know more about these things or any listeners would, um, they, um, do check out the websites for these projects. Um, bloodbricks.org, uh, sorry, projectbloodbricks.org <clears throat> on the one hand and disastertrade.org on the other. There's a, there's a lot more information about these kind of themes.
Thanks so much. And um, we'll make sure to have those links in the um, description of the podcast if anyone wants to check them out. Great. All right. Well, Lori, Sabina, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thank you so much for having you. Yeah.